I cannot wait to get to this message. I'm telling you folks, the Word of God is amazing, absolutely amazing. And to watch it unfold as you study it line upon line, word after word, you see the, the brilliance, of course, the brilliance of our God. You can see how really great He is and how He formulates things. You know, last week we said, for instance, we talked about that Paul's conscience was clear. And we talked about how you and I are to have a clear conscience. And, and we, we made mention the fact, I mean, gosh, he's, Paul says, my conscience is clear, and yet he killed innocent Christians. He killed them, had them put in jail, and he knew they were innocent. And yet he could stand before the council, as we're going to see in chapter 23 and verse 1, with his perfectly clear conscience. And we, we came to surmise last week that he was able to do that because he believed God at his promise and at his word. And God says, look, if you confess my sin, if you, if you confess your sin, if you come to me, God says, and trust in me, I will separate your sin as far as what? The east is from the west. And then God says, and I will remember your sins, what? No more. And Paul, he believed God. And so he could stand before the Sanhedrin and says, I have a perfectly clear conscience before God. And so you and I ought to have this conscience that is clear. And then it falls out, as you're going to see this week, into what I had entitled the, the message first. Uh, I, had, I had called it uh, just Paul's journey to, to Rome, to Caesarea. Because that's all it was. This place in Scripture, as we're going to see in a moment, is not really a doctrinal lesson. But it is, once you dig into it. All the commentators said this is not a place where you can build some theological doctrine. But they're wrong in a sense because what you and I are going to see is what we've ended up entitling this is God's providential hand. And God's providential hand, I am, I am inclined to think that you're going to be like myself, that you don't know what is God's providential hand today. And I'm going to tell you. That's my little hook for you to listen to this. I want to tell you what God's providential hand is today and how it works today. In the meantime, let me tell you that this Friday, on May the 16th, you'll see in your bulletin, there's an insert. We're going to have what we call our third Fridays. It's so much fun. We, we meet in this room. We take all the chairs out of the... Well, not all the chairs, but we move the chairs out of this room and we bring in big tables. And then we put chairs around the table. We have a dinner. We have a, just a great time of fellowship with one another. You can sit and meet some people uh, in the church or you can come with your friends or a group of friends and we just have this time together and it's a wonderful time of fellowship we we build it around some food and we also build it around the word of god and this friday this coming friday may the 16th you're going to have the privilege of hearing one of our young men who is just a wonderful communicator of the word of god in fact even right now as we speak he's communicating with our junior hires and our high schoolers in the other room. It is Rob Selig. And he's going to speak on The Lord is My Shepherd, the 23rd Psalm. And also, I will come up a little bit and talk a little bit about what is the heart of a shepherd. And so, if you want more information, please look in your bulletin. But I would beg of you to come. This is the last time we will have Third Friday until September. We'll take the summer off. And so we'd love for you to come. This is the last meeting we'll have until September, and you are all welcome, and we will have a, just a glorious time. So please come if you can. Um, 
Last week, now, please, Acts chapter 23. Wait till you see this. Wait till you see this. I promise you it's going to move your heart. Last week, we saw how much God wishes to cleanse our conscience. We saw that through Paul. He wants to cleanse our conscience, you and me, so that we may walk with him as mature believers. The key to your walk, the key to our faith, the key to the Rock Community Church is all about our growing and becoming mature believers in Jesus Christ. That's the key. And that can only come through a study and a, a very conscious, uh, conscientious study of the Word of God. And so he wants us to become mature believers, God does, so as we might help weaker, that means not quite as mature, brothers and sisters in the Lord, so as not to cause them to stumble, so that they might grow in their faith. And also, so importantly, our conscience may be clear, knowing that our sins are truly, truly forgiven. And there is nothing, nothing greater than to believe that your walk with God is pure, because of the the ability that you and I have to go to Him when we realize that we have done something wrong and confess our sins to Him because He is righteous and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to make our conscience clear. Well, here in the 23rd chapter, Paul throws the Sanhedrin, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees who made up the Sanhedrin into an uproar by a statement about the resurrection of the dead. What I want you to note is when Paul says in verse, take a look, in chapter 23, he says, um, verse 6, Perceiving that one part were Sadducees, the other part was Pharisees, Paul cried out to the council and said, Listen, brethren, I'm on trial. I am a Pharisee. I am a son of a Pharisee. And I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Now, this is a small thing, but really it's important. You'll know that he didn't say the hope and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, if he said the hope and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he would have at that moment in time brought both the Pharisees and the Sadducees together against him. But Paul, once being in the Sanhedrin, knowing that, that they were San, knowing that they were Pharisees and Sadducees, he being a Pharisee, knew that they would be at odds with one another because they disagreed on, on, on the resurrection, they disagreed on angels, they disagreed on the spirit. And what Paul wanted to do, he's brilliant, I'm telling you, he wanted these two groups to go after each other instead of him. And he, is, he was successful. And so read with me this tremendous place in the Word of God. All along, I think this is one of the finest places that you and I will find in the Bible that, start, that talks about the providential hand of God. It just talks about His providential hand and, and how He moves in our lives. But you're going to see there's a little part of it that I don't believe that you might understand. At least I didn't until I started studying this this week. Read with me, please, starting with verse, verse 6. And what you're going to see is we're going to go all the way through verse 35 because what this is is just simply a narrative. It just talks about how Paul moved from Jerusalem to Caesarea. But watch what takes place. It's absolutely remarkable. Verse 6. Paul, perceiving that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. 
And as he said this, there rose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For, it says in verse 8, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Verse 9 says, And there arose a great uproar. Some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heartily, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel spoke to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and brought him into the barracks. Verse 11 But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at Paul's side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. I'm going to stop here for just a second, but I want to go on, because this is a transition from this place to the next day. But you'll note the providential hand of God. He says, Take courage, Paul. Just as you have witnessed for me here in in Jerusalem, so you must do it in Rome as well. Now watch. In verse 12, when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy. They bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. I love, I'm stop again. I didn't put this in my notes, but I thought it was clever. I just read through all the commentaries. Dr. McGee writes, and in his wonderful sense of humor, says, I bet these guys got awfully hungry and awfully thirsty waiting for Paul. They never got him. They never got him. They put themselves under an oath, verse 12, saying they wouldn't eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. And they came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring Paul down to you as though you are going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. Verse 16, again, the providential hand of God. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. And he came and he entered the barracks and he told Paul, And Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. Verse 19 tells us, The commander took him by the hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him privately. What is it that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. Do not listen to them, for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. Therefore, the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one, that you have notified me of these things. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, Get two hundred soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen. And they were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Now this commander, whose name is Claudius Lysias, writes a letter to to the governor, Felix. 
verse 25. He wrote a letter having this form, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greeting. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came upon them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charges for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. Verse 29, And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusations deserving death or imprisonment. And when I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. Verse 31, So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipatris. And the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. And when these had come to Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and also presented Paul to him. And when he had read it, he asked from what providence he was. And when he learned that he was from Sicilia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's Praetorium. All of this is how Paul gets to Rome, Caesarea. But you'll note, next week we will, the, the, the anger of the Sanhedrin, the anger of the head priest, the high priest, Ananias. Look at verse 1 of chapter 24. We won't go into it today, but he came down five days later. He came down with some of the elders and with an attorney. He comes and brings an attorney. Oh boy, Kay, can we relate to this at all? This attorney is called Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. They are so enraged by him that they want him dead. Why? And how did God protect him, Paul? And how God protects Paul is the same way he protects and comforts you and me. And I want you to know what the Bible has to say about that because it is critical in yours and my growth, maturity in Christ. Let's pray first. Please, Father, open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds so that we might receive the greatest privilege that any people could ever be afforded, and that is to behold the wonders of your law, your words. May we study them, Father. May we come to understand what you want us to know and, and how you want us to become as a people who know and who love you. When we sing, how great is our God, that is not just a, a phrase. It is the essence of who you are. That your providential hand is at work within each of our lives. And so, Father, I, I beg of you, please, to move me aside. Um, I would really prefer, dear Father, that we, we concentrate on your Bible, your words, so that we might hear from your heart, not necessarily mine. And so please, teach us. Lead us, dear Father, by the very Spirit of God that indwells within us. Teach us, Father, your truths, we pray. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. Verse 2. I'm going back a little bit. Paul was convinced by Ananias' action that he would never receive a fair trial. Look at verse 2 for just a second. 
Paul was going to speak before them, says, I've lived my life with a good conscience. And then in verse 2, the high priest Ananias commanded those who were standing beside Paul to strike him on the mouth. That word strike, we said last week, was not just a slap. It was to, to punch him, to, to, to put a, a hurt upon him, knock his teeth out if necessary. And so perceiving that he wasn't going to get a fair trial, Paul, Paul being smart as all get out, perceived that one group, in verse 6, verse 6, he perceived that one of the groups were the Sadducees and the other were Pharisees. He knew this because he was a part of the Sanhedrin. And he knew that they were at odds with one another. So he began crying out in the council, Brethren, I'm a Pharisee. I am a son of a Pharisee. And I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of dead. Note, it's not of Jesus Christ. He's saying, I am on trial for the hope of the dead. And with that statement, if he would have said on the, on the trial for the, the hope and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have come together and been against him. But at this place, because he said it this way, look at verses 7 and 8. And as he said this, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was immediately, I, wrote, I had the word immediately, divided. Because the Sadducees in verse 8 say there is no resurrection, there is no angel, there is no spirit. But the Pharisees, they acknowledged them all. And Paul was fully aware that there was going to be a, a division in the group the moment he mentioned this. So with the statement of verse 6, Paul threw that meeting into an uproar. In fact, it says so. So bitter, look at verse 9. There arose a great uproar. Some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and they began to argue heatedly saying, what do they say? We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit, suppose an angel spoke to him. So bitter was their theological dispute that the Pharisees now were even willing to defend Paul in front of their own, the Sadducees. Paul had them. They became so angry, there was so much bitterness, that when the commander saw this in verse 10, look at verse 10, the, the great dissension began to develop. The commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. And, and, and the commander was worried because he was, in, he was in charge of Paul. That was his prisoner. And if anything happened to Paul without him protecting Paul, then, then whatever happened to Paul would happen to him. So he didn't want to take a chance to lose Paul amongst these people who were just irate. They were, they were so angry. And so he ordered the troops, middle of verse 10, to go down to take Paul away from them by force and bring him back into the barracks. Amazingly, folks. I mean, think about it. Think about it just a little bit. Even after Paul was brought before the highest Jewish court in the land, the captain was no nearer to discovering what crime that Paul had committed that would put him, that they want to kill him. What did he do so wrong? Now, why? Why did they not come to a conclusion about Paul? As we see later on in verse 29, I think it is, the captain, when he wrote Felix, he says, there is nothing that this guy has done that deserves to be imprisoned or to be put to death. He could see it. Why couldn't the Sanhedrin? Because ultimately, listen, the Sanhedrin were not so concerned about Paul. 
their concern was that they were dead set in not coming to grips with the one that Paul was speaking about, namely the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He was the separation in all of this. You see, Jesus Christ already warned those of us, us, who will follow him. In John chapter 16, verse 2, you don't really need to turn there, because I'll read it, it's kind of a quick verse. But, but Jesus says, they're going to make you outcasts in the synagogues. And an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think they are offering service to God. And you watch today. You see what's happening today in our society. We have become, as believers, the, the one group that, that, that there is no political correctness is, is, is believers, Christians. You can say anything you want about them, and most people will just laugh and, 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 and mock. We have become an outcast in our society today as believers in Jesus Christ. And I believe, not to, not to put a downer upon Mother's Day, but an hour is coming when everyone who would kill a believer would assume that they are offering a service to God. And so now, Paul, alone in his cell, I don't know, this is just my thinking, what he's going through his heart, maybe uncertain about his, his future. I mean, who could blame him? Don't ever, don't ever, when you read the scriptures as, as we should read it, don't ever just think this is that person in that day and, and you know what's going to happen so you know that he must be relaxed. Think about if you were in jail. Put it that mind, mindset that you were in jail waiting to see what's going to happen. These people, an angry, violent mob wants to kill you. Would you be relaxed? I would not be. I would not be. I've been, as I mentioned to you, I've been through a, a situation before a violent mob, and, and it was very uncomfortable, and I was not relaxed at all. And so more than likely, uncertain about his future, Jesus, his providential hand, moves into the life of Paul. Watch. Verse 11, on the night immediately following all of this commotion, the Lord stood at Paul's side and said, Take courage. Take courage, Paul. Take courage, man. For you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, and so you must witness in Rome as well. Jesus came to his side just as he did before. Look at chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. Look back a couple of pages. Look at chapter 18, verse 9 and 10. Verse 9, it says, The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, don't be afraid any longer. Go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And so Jesus was more than willing, more than willing, folks, to comfort Paul. But I wanted you to look at this providential hand of God later on. I want us to look at 2 Corinthians. Please hold your place here. Turn to 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I mean, chapter, yes, chapter 4 in a moment. So stay, hold a, 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 your finger in, in, in 2 Corinthians. Listen to Paul's words later in his life concerning the comfort, the providential hand, if you would, of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 6, Paul writes, But God, who comforts the depressed, comforts us. How? How? 
Does, does Jesus Christ appear? No. God had the coming of Titus come to Paul, be by his side to comfort him in his time of depression. And from that, well, no. Notice, Jesus does not personally come to Paul to comfort him. He did before. He doesn't hear in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. What he did was he sent another believer who loved Paul to comfort Paul. God comforts us through other believers today. Watch and see. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 now. Turn back. Look. It's an amazing place in the Word of God. Paul says concerning our comforting one another, the providential hand of God, he is now passed on to believers. Watch. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Note verse 4. Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that, note now, we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been or are comforted by God. See what God does? Don't leave here for a moment. What God does for those of us who will grow up in our faith and become more mature, we realize the promises of God are just as they are. How great is our God. And He gives you and me promises and He gives you and me blessings. We learned last week that Paul's conscience was clear, not because he didn't do anything wrong. On the contrary, Paul called himself the chief of all sinners. Paul's conscience was clear because he believed the promises of God, that God would take his sin and his ill doings and separate them from him as far as the east is from the west, and God would remember them no more. And so now, as we grow in our faith, we are to, when we go through trials and difficulties, we have been comforted by the word of God, those of us who are mature. And when we have been comforted by the word of God, we are to take that comfort when someone else who is perhaps not as mature as you and I hopefully become in our walk with Christ, and we will be able to comfort those who are afflicted with the same comfort that we received from the word of God as we comfort others. goes on to say in verse 5, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance... Very few pastors would read that verse to you. Our, 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 our sufferings are going to be in abundance. Almost every one of us here can say amen to that to one degree or another. It goes on to say, so also is our comfort in abundance through Christ. And so what we learned is the providential hand of God has now been given to believers. Titus and all of us, we become the hands of we become the feet. We become the heart of God to those within, the, within the, the family of God. We comfort others with the same comfort that we have been comforted by God Himself. You and I now today are the providential hand of God, the feet of God, the heart of God. We are the ones who are to comfort one another. I don't know about any of you, but I've never heard the voice of God audibly. I, I, I hear them when I read the, the scriptures, but I've never seen them. I've never had a vision. But I've been comforted by brothers and sisters in the Lord. I've been comforted by those who have comforted me. 
with the comfort that they received as they walked with Christ. Brothers and sisters, those of us here who love the Lord, it is critical for you and me to grow up in our faith. It is critical for us to become mature so that we can help those who are just starting in this new faith of theirs, of this understanding and knowing Jesus Christ. And you and I are to be the providential hand of God within their lives by, by comforting them in the same way that we have been comforted. The hands, the feet, and the heart of God has been given to us today. Now why? Let's go back to... Well, hold your, hold up, put something in here because we're going to come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in just a second. Why did the Jews react with such a violent hostility and lying against Paul? Someone who committed no crime against the law. I mean, the commander reasoned that in his heart. Look ahead at uh, chapter 23. Look ahead at verse, verse 29. He says to Felix, I found this guy about their law to be under no accusations deserving death or imprisonment. I mean, this guy could figure it out. Why couldn't the Sanhedrin? Why did they react with such hostility and such lies against someone who committed no crime against their law, who, who simply just wanted to tell them about how they might obtain eternal life? And let's say he was wrong. Let's say that Paul was wrong. We know he's not, but let's say he was. What crime was there for him to come to them and, and tell them about what he thought was a way for them to have everlasting life? What, what crime is there? Listen, when, 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 when Mormons come to my door or Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door, I try not to get angry with them. They're doing what they think is right. They're, they're probably just loving, lovingly coming to try to help me not to go to hell. So when they come to my door, let me, let me give you a, a very strong suggestion what I would encourage you to do. Open up the door. You don't need to invite them in your house. In fact, I've never done that. Never had one of them in my house. But I sit down on the porch or sit down outside. I bring my Bible and I bring a piece of paper and I bring a pencil. And I said, you know, it's so kind of you guys to come to my house. Let's talk about what you want to talk. Let's talk about the Bible. And I said, here's a piece of paper and pencil. Would you please put your names on here and your phone number and your address? Because when I want to hear what you have to tell me, I'm going to come to your house. But since you've come to my house, you're going to have to hear what I'm going to say. So I, have, I don't want to hear what you've already pre-planned. I don't tell them this, but I already know. When they meet in the morning, before they send these guys out, they tell them what they want to talk about. And they have a plan. You take them away from their plan, they don't know Genesis from Revelation. They don't have a clue what they're trying to say. Don't let them get to what they want to talk to you about. You talk to them about your Savior and your Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, I've never received a paper back with their names or address on it. <laughs> they don't know what to do with that. And they don't know what to do with the fact that they can't say what they want to say. I do not let them. When they start, I say, nope, ooh, my house. Give me your number. I'll come. I'll listen to everything. I'll take all your information. But I'll come to your house. When I come to your house, you talk. You've chosen to come to my house. It's my turn to talk. They don't like it. It's the best way to talk to them. And you'll see, they'll leave you alone. They will. They will leave you alone. They don't like the fact that they've got to listen to that truth. They don't like the fact that they have bombarded. I'll give you another one. I didn't say this any other service. I'll give you one other clue. Of the two of them, one is just a trainee. Try to find out who the trainee is. 
leave the other guy alone and talk to the trainee. You just say, you be quiet. Let me tell this guy. Oh, he gets so mad. They get so mad. I've had one guy drag his trainee off because he was afraid I was going to indoctrinate him with, the, with the, the things, the truth about Christ. Don't let them do anything to you. But don't think ill of them. In their heart of hearts, I think they really do believe what they're saying and want to love on you and me. And so Paul, Paul just proclaimed salvation in the Messiah. I think the answer is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, why, they, why the, the Jews acted so violently, the Sanhedrin acted so violently and so lied about him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says this, Paul writes, In whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded, has blinded, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. This Sanhedrin was so deceived that they were unable to discern the truth. They were so swept up into Satan's rebellion against God that began long ago in heaven that they were a part of it. They were blinded. Satan himself, Lucifer, not being content, turn to, turn to Isaiah chapter 14. You'll want to see this. Look at Isaiah chapter 14 with me. Satan not being content of being the most exalted of all of God's created beings rebelled against God. And what did, what did Satan want? He wanted God's glory. That's why, folks, when you and I do anything for the Lord, we should never, ever allow ourselves to get puffed up and start taking credit for it. We don't do anything that God doesn't enable us to do. And we have no right to take away any of the glory of our Father who is in heaven. And so do what you do, the best of your ability. But when someone starts to thank you, allow them to thank you, say, you're welcome, thank you so much. But when they go overboard and say, wow, you're the best thing I've ever seen since sliced bread, stop them, stop them. Don't let them take you to that place. See, Lucifer, watch how he says, I, I will, I will. Watch. Verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. He's talking about Lucifer. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But, note, verse 13. But you, you said in your heart, I will descend, ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the Most High. His rebellion continued. When he was cast out of heaven unto this earth, he went down and he roamed across the earth and he looked at different people. But first and foremost, he saw Adam and Eve and he deceived, he tempted and deceived them. And their disobedience against God led the human race, all of us, into what is called today sin. But Satan knew that that wasn't the end of it. He knew that that wouldn't just do it sin because he knows God's plan far better than you and I do. He can read scripture and he's smarter than, it, than any and all of us. And still wanting to stop God's plan though, he decided to try to kill the Messiah and so he had him nailed to a cross. 
And he died upon the cross. But three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, never to die again. And so utterly defeated by the saving work of Jesus Christ upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead, since then Satan wishes to take with him as many to hell as possible. How is he working today? I'll tell you. It's as, it's as clear as the nose on my face. Man, you can't miss that. Today he's working to silence and disrupt the church. And he's doing a pretty good job. He is also working today by silencing and disrupting preachers from preaching the word of God. The church, we become silenced through division, through disunity. There is nothing more deceitful than when we have troubles here within our own family, the family of God that we argue with one another. Goodness gracious, can we not just come to one another in humility and try to solve whatever it is that is going wrong? Well, no, there's disruption. There's disunity within church. The color of the carpet really just bugs me. Doesn't it you? Who chose that? Have you heard the music lately? It's a little too loud, don't you think? I'm, I'm, a matter of fact, I think I'm going to go to another church where they play music like I want it. I want it. And so the rebellion comes, and the rebellion comes within a church, and, and sooner or later there's disruption and Satan is doing his work. And then he tries to get a hold of the pastor's heart to where the pastor becomes lazy, becomes through their own pride and their ignorance not using and not teaching this, the Word of God. And I cannot tell you how many people have left churches that I've had the privilege of teaching and going elsewhere where they, where they ask the people, don't even bring the Bible. They don't even teach the Word of God. I've heard of churches that tell you nowadays, don't bring your Bible to church, for goodness sakes. We're inviting guests, and most of them don't have Bibles, and you're just going to embarrass them by having a Bible. So don't bring your Bible. You don't want to embarrass the visitors? Pastor, have you ever thought you might be embarrassing God by not having people taught the very Word of God that He has ordered us to teach? And so Satan is doing a pretty good job with churches today by bringing disunity within the body of Christ and by preachers who don't have the courage and the, 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 the desire to sit down long enough to let him teach us. Well, what we see in verses 16, 17, 18, and 19 back in Acts chapter 23, it's enough of that. We see that God uses a person, Paul's young nephew, and he is just a, he's just a lad. We see that in verse 19. In verse 19, it, it just says this of, of, of Paul's nephew. The commander took him by the hand. He's just a little guy. And asked him, what, what did they say against your uncle? And he told them. And then we see in verses 20 and 21, the Sanhedrin, these so-called religious men go along with the lie and the plot to kill an innocent person. And so the captain, realizing this this is all getting out of hand, I'm, I'm getting Paul out of here. Uh, they might succeed, and if he dies, I'll die. So he sends him to Felix in Caesarea. 
And there's Paul. And he writes to Felix, as I already told you a couple times in verse 29, I don't see anything wrong with this guy. Certainly not, not imprisonment, certainly not death. And so he sends him off to Felix. It's 65 miles north. That's how much they wanted to get Paul. They, they were willing to travel, six, and that's hard, 65 hard miles north to go. Ananias and a group of the elders and, a, and an attorney went to, to them to try to accuse Paul. You know, I, 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 think Paul, I think Paul was amused by all of this. And I'll tell you why and how. He had already been told in, in verse 11, God says, take courage. You did what I wanted you to do in Jerusalem. Now I'm going to have you do it in Rome, in Caesarea. And then, and then God's providential hand was, was, was moved in the nephew of Paul, this young lad. And I think Paul was amused, saying, you know, man, why all the soldiers? I can get to Caesarea walking, unguarded. Nobody's going to lay a hand on me. God's already told me I'm going to be there. You see, what Paul did was what you and I need to do, and he has entrusted himself to the Word of God. He entrusts himself to God. You see, folks, Paul eventually reached his divinely appointed destination, not because the army protected him, but because God's sovereignty and power protected him. And because nothing can thwart God's plan. God has a plan for you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me. He's got a plan for us. And we are utterly safe and invincible until God calls us home. Nothing can stop us. And so what you and I need to understand is we need to focus our promises upon our lives from God. And we need to grow up. We need to grow up, church. We need to become mature, church so that we can comfort other people, so that we can be God's providential hand in their lives, because more than likely God's not going to come down and pat them on the behind and say, it's all right, take courage. No, he's going to need you and me to do that today. Like this young lad, this nephew of Paul's, you and I are to be God's hands, his feet, and his heart within the church. For some of you, you come and you're on the fringe. We don't know whether you're here or not here for the most part. And then trouble hits and we don't know who to help you. You must get yourself into a small group so that, the, that they can, and you can hold each other accountable so that they'll know when you're not here. They'll know when trouble hits in your house and in your life and they can come and comfort you. And, and that's a good thing because sooner or later, when you're in that small group, you're going to have the wonderful privilege of going to some of your friends who comforted you, and you'll be able to comfort them back with the same comfort that God gave to you through their lives. I owe you two minutes. I will pay back. I love you. I love you folks more than I can tell you. Ladies, happy Mother's Day. Thank you so much. Happy Mother's Day. We thank God for you, ladies. You are the very essence of this church, really and truly. I know I make a big fuss of the men, and I love the men in this church, and we need to take the rightful place that God's called us to be. But without you, ladies, we don't have a prayer. We don't have a prayer. Lord, I want to thank you for the people of this church. I love them so much, and I thank you 
that you've placed in me a, a, a heart to love them. Uh, I don't quite comprehend it, but I thank you for it. It's a very comforting thing. And so, Lord, I pray your blessings upon us that we will see the responsibility that we have to be the very providential hand of yours to, to move within someone's life, to comfort them when they're dis- distressed, when they're in trouble, to, to be the hands and, and the feet and the very heart of you, dear God. But none of us are going to be able to do that until we grow up. We need to grow up in our faith. We need to become mature. Help us, Father. By your grace, get us into your words so that we can mature and be the people that you've called us to be. Lord, thank you for everyone here. I pray that each family has a wonderful, wonderful Mother's Day and that they will rejoice with one another. Thank you so much, Father. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I love you all so much. Have a great day. Thanks. See you next week.